Welcome to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paola has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon. Hello, today my guest is Kara Crosswaite Brindle. She's a therapist working in suicide prevention in Denver, Colorado. Hi, Kara. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Paula. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yes, I know you have a lot of experience working with patients that have suicidal ideation or attempts. But before we talk about that, I would like to ask you, why did you start working with suicide? Because I know that even for us counselors, it's a, such a heavy topic and it's very risky. And many people just avoid that. I just, I just want to know why you started working in this area. Absolutely. I think this question has come up a lot more since I started a nonprofit around suicide prevention as well. But mm -hmm. I think for most of us, it's actually a personal story. Um, and so for me, I'm a survivor of suicide loss where I've had two family members die by suicide before I was 18. And so having that significant loss happen, you know, as a child, I think absolutely shaped me into a therapist and then kind of being able to start this conversation and being able to hold space for suicide because it had already touched the lives of my family. Yes, that's what I thought, because most of the people, at least the ones that I know, even the associations, all the fun, uh, <coughs> people who work with NGOs, it's usually personal. Absolutely. More yeah. so, more than ever, I think. People keep coming up, and I'm sure this is true for you too, Paula, that people share their personal story of, of being touched by suicide. So I think it's becoming more and more common for people to open up about that. Yes, it, it has changed a lot. I don't know if it's the same here in the U.S., but certainly in Brazil, it used to, it used to be more stigmatized. Now people are starting to realize that if you talk about it, you can really uh, walk towards prevention. Absolutely. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Who, if you don't mind talking, who, who did you lose? Uh, both my uncles. So on my father's side, there's four kids, and two mm -hmm. of them had died at different times while I was um, a child. One of those uncles was very close to the family and was much more of the shock, I think, for uh -huh. all of us, because I was also older. And so he's the person that I think of fondly when I'm trying to embody the compassion that I feel like he didn't have, um, and just not being able to share his story and tell everyone he was struggling. Unfortunately, he is one of those examples of someone who suffered in silence and who didn't tell us that mm -hmm. things weren't okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your loss, but I'm sure it's very rewarding for you to help people in that situation now. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. I think I'm doing it in his memory, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. Same with me. I do this for my dad. And great part of mm -hmm. it is, is, is not, it's not about guilt, at least not for me, because I didn't feel guilty about my father's suicide but it's about trying to avoid it from happening and also help families who go through the same pain and loss. Absolutely, and I appreciate that you were brave enough to share your story. I think for a lot of us, it still feels risky or uncomfortable, and I think it's, it's nice to hear someone say, you know what, I'm going to share my story, and I'm going to encourage others to do so as well, because I think that's actually part of the healing process. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I believe they, they do feel more comfortable talking to someone 
who have been through uh, someone who has been through the same loss. It's 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 the same same thing with uh, with these groups, suicide prevention groups or support groups. It really helps. So let's talk about what you do when you work. The first question, I do work with uh, suicidal patients and trying to, of course, uh, bring a message of hope to them. Do you see any common traits in these patients when they first come in to you? Absolutely. I think the first thing to name is that most of the clients coming in aren't necessarily starting by saying that they're experiencing suicide or suicidal thoughts. Uh And I think that's really coming from a place of fear, right? So here in the U.S., a lot of people are telling us, I don't want to share this. I don't want to open up about this because I'm worried someone's going to put me in the hospital. And so that's a very fear-based reaction, understandably, Uh um, of losing their independence or being put somewhere they don't want to be. And so for most of the clients that I work with, the similarity that actually shows up is pain. Um, And for most of us who are studying suicide, it really is more about pain than death. It's pain that feels inescapable, pain that feels like it can't be changed or, or, you know, that there's no hope there. Mm -hmm. And so I would say for the clients that eventually get to a place where they can tell me outright, I'm not okay, I'm thinking of suicide, once we've built that rapport, it really is more about pain and hopelessness. Yes, I'm. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's something that I I usually when I you know have give presentations or trainings I often talk about this. Suicide is not about wanting to die, but wanting to end pain, some kind exactly. of unbearable pain, and it's it comes from a place of hopelessness. Mm-hmm. So exactly. Yeah. So that's what you also see. Mm-hmm. What would, if you could walk me through a first session, what usually happens in a first session? And I'm doing this, uh, Kara, just so you understand that so many people, they don't come to us. They don't come to counselors, therapists, because they're afraid of what's going to happen. So I think mm-hmm. it's very helpful to just walk them through and say, here's what would what it would look like in terms of a right. first session. Yeah, I think, you know, getting past the paperwork, which is a necessary um, but kind of boring component of a first Mm -hmm. session, you know, the big piece that I do try to emphasize in building that first connection and rapport is talking about if there was a crisis like suicide, what would happen? And I think being able to address that with every single client before I even know what their story is Mm -hmm. really kind of normalizes, here's what to expect of me, here's what to expect in this office. Um, Mm -hmm. when it comes to your safety. And so kind of having that conversation about if you are experiencing suicide, I want to talk to you about that. I want to figure out what we can do to support you. Does that mean we're safety planning? Does that mean we are connecting with one of your supports out of a concern for your safety? And then I also emphasize in that first conversation, you know, that the hospital is my last resort um, when it comes to suicide, because I think that gives them a little bit of a relief to yes, know that I'm they can sure. talk to me yeah. about it without me jumping to conclusions about, oh, we're going to put you in a hospital because that's where you need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this becomes more relevant now that we're tracking the term chronic suicidality. Mm-hmm. And so most people think of like imminent danger, immediate, right now, they have a plan, there's something going on, they need that intervention. But more and more of the clients I see now are people who find comfort in the thought of suicide if things don't get better. So that hopelessness you mentioned, Paula, the mm-hmm. idea of I don't have a way to escape this pain. And so if I was to come into a first session saying, I want you to take suicide off the table and say, this is not an option, I think there'd be a good chunk of people who wouldn't be able to come back and engage in therapy because mm-hmm. that's part of their comfort to know it's possible. Mm-hmm. To know that that's one of the possibilities at least. Yes. 
Yes. Mm -hmm. And so I think knowing that that is a new distinction in our field of recognizing there's a person who has chronic thoughts, meaning they have frequent thoughts of suicide that maybe they never move forward with, Mm -hmm. but are a part of their everyday experience, helping them understand that the hospital is the last resort can be helpful because that person will then hopefully be encouraged to open up and share, this is what it really looks like for me every day. Yes, and and the other thing too is uh, to be able to sit in with their pain because it can be so scary, and I Absolutely. think even um, even counselors who do who do not have a lot of experience with this, they can jump if they don't have the proper training. They can jump into this hospital possibility quickly because they're not com- because they're not comfortable themselves. They're scared. They're scared of liability and all of that. I'm sure you see that often. Yes, and that's, I think, why I was inspired to work with other providers or helpers to say, what do we need to ask? How do we need to ask it? Mm -hmm. Recognizing our own bias and our own fear, because Mm -hmm. absolutely you're going to feel alert and you're going to feel that adrenaline show up when someone says, hey, I'm suicidal. But to really be able to hold space for that, as you mentioned, and just sit with it can tell you a lot more about the person's experience rather than jumping to a conclusion. Yes, I, I had an experience actually yesterday. I had a friend of mine. Well, I'm sure this happens to you too. The moment someone you know, and they know you work with suicide, someone you know, you get all these calls from friends and family members. If they think someone is thinking about suicide, they, they immediately call you. So I had one yes. of these uh, unfortunate calls yesterday. A friend of mine called me, and she was talking to a friend on the phone, and the friend started telling her, about her will and where it would be if she if something ever happened to me and it just didn't didn't sit in very nicely with my friend she said you know I just I just had this chill in me and I said this is not right and why is she talking about her will and she had read my book so she knew that it could be one of the warning signs and that's why she called but she had a, she was so stressed for obvious mm-hmm. reason and that's normal but she had a headache, and she was like, Paul, I don't know what to do. So I had to walk her through risk assessment and the questions that she can ask. So I'm really glad we're doing this today because I think it can help a lot of people out there. And mm-hmm. the, I hope so. Yeah, the, <laughs> yes, the two, I think the two people that we can help with this episode today is those who are at risk. So we're going to talk to them, and we're also going to give some, maybe some practical interventions and what to do general guidance on mm-hmm. for people who who know someone for those who know right. someone who are at risk so let's start with risk assessment what kind of questions do you ask when you're trying to assess the risk so i think for the professional side of this it's much more normalized to go straight at it and so what i mean by that is being really direct mm-hmm. and being able to say are you thinking of suicide are you thinking of killing yourself are you thinking of dying And when I go around and do presentations or trainings with other helpers, other providers, whether that would be a teacher or a mentor or coach or a mental health professional, I I think we're more likely to to kind of edge around it, kind of circle around it because we're not always comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so to highlight like that direct questions really matter, it's important because we can have someone asking the question of, are you thinking of hurting yourself? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that question can be so different than the answer to the question of suicide. Because the person who's in that much pain might say, well, no, I'm not thinking of hurting myself. I'm thinking about dying. Mm-hmm. And so to be really direct is important. I think for the listeners of this podcast, I think it's also important to stress if you're not the person who's comfortable asking that question, that it's important to find someone who is. 
Um, because when I reach out to the community and I connect with them, I want them to know that they're totally able to advocate for themselves and say, I'm not equipped to do this. I don't feel comfortable and give them permission to say that so that we can find someone who can have that conversation. Uh, because I think the, the outcome would be if they are willing to have the conversation, this could be a really healthy thing. But if they're saying, oh, I'm willing to have it, but my body is showing I'm not really that comfortable, it could actually be more damaging to the person at risk is something I've experienced at least. Yes, that's, that's, that's very relevant what you just said, because just because you're a therapist doesn't mean you can deal with suicide. Right. And in fact, so many of our colleagues say, I don't work with suicide. And I think you, Paula, and I can agree that's not necessarily the case. There are plenty of people, 10.3 million people to be exact, who've had suicidal thoughts, but have never moved beyond that to plan or action. Mm -hmm. And so to normalize the fact that people do have these thoughts on occasion is very different than someone who goes through, through with a plan yes. or has a more intense experience. And so I think it's important to recognize, can I go there? Can I ask those questions? And if not, who can? Yes, I, I often explain to, to patients too, and, and also to friends who ask me questions about this, that suicide is a continuum. You can have thoughts, most people have thoughts about suicide at some point in their lives because they're going through crisis or difficult times in their lives, but it's it's whether or not you move forward in this continuum that can be worrisome. So do you often think about it? Is it something I had a patient the other day tell me, she actually came and said, I'm very worried because I can't get the thought out of my mind. So that's very different. Absolutely. I completely agree. I think that's why it's so important to sit with that experience and ask some questions and get a better sense of their suicide story. Because if your patient hadn't described it as this being difficult, I can't get this out of my head, that can feel very different than someone who said, I had a fleeting thought while driving on a windy road last week. Right? Mm -hmm. like it just feels very different when it comes to urgency and risk yes. in those two scenarios. Yeah, so let's say you have a patient that says, yes, I've been thinking quite often about suicide. What is the next step? For me, professionally, I would say, can you tell me more? Um, because that would open up the door for more sharing of the pain. That's probably the driver behind it. Um, maybe they're starting to give me context of like what's changed, what has made this possible. Um, I think this is where a lot of those warning signs come in, but also things like triggers. Is there an anniversary that's making their mood shift? Is there something that happened recently that is contributing to the fact that suicide is now possible? And so I think without going straight into plan or intent, I think you could say, can you tell me more about that? And the person can choose to share a little bit more that would give you a better sense of where to go. Mm -hmm. And this is also, it, it can be used by just, you don't have to be a counselor to do that. I mean, if you're listening Absolutely. to, if you're listening to us and you, you have a friend or a loved one who you think is at risk for suicide, you can ask these very same questions. But just the basic thing is sit with the pain, breathe. If it's hard, it's going to be a very hard conversation to have for sure. But ask the right questions and try to ascertain where they are in terms of planning. Do you, yes, do you... I think you summed it up beautifully in this idea of trying to remain curious about it. To be curious is non-threatening, right? To say, can you tell me more about that? Or I want it, I'm here, I'm listening. Um, encouraging them with our body and our face that we're present and we're just trying to understand where they're coming from can be so important and actually really help them open up versus someone who's like, 
going through that cold clinical checklist of thought, plan, intent. I think this is shifting in the industry because we need to realize it's more than that. Suicide is much more complex than just those three questions. Yes, and also it's like most things, and we know that, and, and anyone who's listening will know that most things are about the connection you have and you establish at that moment. So mm -hmm. if you if you come from a place of curiosity and care, they will know because we feel these things. But if, if you come from a place of judgment, then that can be even even increase the risk of suicide. Mm -hmm. And panic and fear. <laughs> yes, of course. Absolutely. These are heavy things. <laughs> yeah. So um, the next thing to do, what would that be? What is the best course of action? Does it depend on where the person is in terms of planning? Yes, I would say so. I think, you know, the clinical term for this is lethality. So basically how lethal or how um, life risk, how much life risk is there to the plan or the, the things they're experiencing. So you had mentioned a patient yesterday who, um, or later, earlier in the week that had said, I'm having thoughts and I can't control them. They're continuing. They're mm -hmm. frequent. And I think that's very different than a person who I mentioned who had a fleeting thought one day while driving on that windy road. But I think it also depends on what kind of plan they have, right? So I had one client, um, we'll call them George for the purpose of this podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, George came into a session and a lot of things had changed in his life from the last week's session. And so he was sharing kind of all these different things that had happened. He'd been laid off from his job. He was worried about his marriage, right? These different things that are significant to a person. And he went further into the conversation to say that he had a loaded firearm in the trunk of his car. And as you can imagine, anyone sitting across from George in that moment would have an adrenaline reaction going, wow, not only does he have a plan, he has a means and it's really accessible. It's, he's driving around with it in the trunk of his car. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that's very different than my 12-year-old client who would say, hey, I've decided I'm just going to stop eating and that's how I'm going to die. And I think most of us can know that, you know, to stop eating is a process and it's not immediate and therefore it's less lethal than George's experience with the loaded firearm. So I think that changes kind of our response based on that imminent danger, right? That immediate danger to self or others. For George, with the loaded firearm that's not secure in any way, we have a different plan of action than our 12-year-old who says, I'm going to stop eating, right? Mm -hmm. So for all of the clients I work with, we're always looking at, you know, access to support and safety, but we're also looking at that lethality to figure out the next steps. If you want more information about suicide, my book is now available on Amazon, both in paperback and digital formats. Just type in the title, Understanding Suicide, or my name, Paula Fontinelli. The book was written for people like you, and it's the result of more than 10 years of conversations with families who lost loved ones to suicide, individuals who attempted suicide, specialists, and mental health professionals. Thank you for your support. Now back to the interview. You mentioned uh, as if you uh, one of the things that we can do is to figure out support, support system or build a support system. I have a question because I think it's a very tricky one. You were talking about a child. I don't think there is much thinking there when it's a child. But when it's an adult, many times uh, the family is one of the triggers. And it can be one of the sources of pain. So how do you know when to involve the family? 
That's a great question. I think, you know, in that first initial meeting, one of the things I do is just get an emergency contact, and that may or may not be a family member. Sometimes that's a roommate. Sometimes that's someone else that's a trusted adult in their life. And so having that person on hand is helpful. When it comes to interacting with the family, I think it is a case-by-case basis. I think it's more about who is the immediate person who can help us keep them safe. If they live with a roommate, we're most likely going to get their permission to talk to the roommate about safety. If they live with their aunt, their uncle, their grandparent, you know, we're going to be establishing some sort of buy-in from the client that it's okay to interact with them. And it's mainly coming from a place of safety, right? We're not just calling them up to have a conversation for no reason. It's really because of that concern for safety. And so I think there's another challenge here, which I think you were alluding to there as well, which is we have two generations of young people right now that feel like they don't have anyone that cares. Um, They're the ones that have coined the term ghosted for their friends who, when something better comes along, Mm -hmm. they're often running doing something else. And so when it comes to safety planning specifically, something I emphasize to helpers is that when you have this conversation, be prepared for the person to say, I have no one to count on. I don't have a support and then figuring out how to go into that deeper because otherwise you feel like you've just been stonewalled and the conversation is over. Right. I have yes. no one period. <laughs> yes. And that's that's a, that's safety, a very, so. ha- yeah, that's a hard one. I mean, to continue right in terms of safety mm-hmm. plan, because that's one of the first things we ask. I mean, who do you have to help? Right. right. And so for those young people, when we think of our LGBTQ plus individuals, there was a study that showed up that had a really significant ripple effect on the community, which said if you have one trusted adult in your life for LGBTQ plus individuals, that reduces their risk of suicide by 40 percent. Wow. 40. That's a huge so difference. I, I appreciate that they said trusted adults because that could be anyone, right? We're not just talking about family here, especially if the nuclear family or the family members are part of the trigger, as you named. But, like, do they have a coach, a mentor, a boss, a peer, somebody that they can trust that would be the person to help us with that safety plan? Yes, and, and also it's part, I think, of our role to walk through this path with the patient because sometimes they come in there in so much pain that they really don't see. They, they will say what you just mentioned, I don't have anyone. And then you have to slowly, okay, ask some questions and just mm-hmm. guide them until they find someone that maybe they do have that could help. Right, because these young adults, I mean, the irony is that for some of our young adults, they're more than willing to share that they're not okay, but they're not willing to share that they're suicidal. Like there's this line that they won't cross. They'll share it maybe through social media, but they won't look you in the eye and say, I'm suicidal. And so when I'm safety planning with those young adults, those 18 to 35-year-olds, for example, it's more about asking who are your professional supports and then who are the people who can provide a healthy distraction. And lo and behold, when you frame it that way, all of a sudden they have someone on the list because it doesn't feel like there's an invasion of privacy. It's the person who can send them the funny cat video, the person who can talk about their day, the person who can just distract them out of their own head so they can feel like they have a little bit of respite from that pain. So basically what you're doing is using their own language. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, let's let's stay there, safety plan, because that's one of the main steps in terms of suicide prevention. What can you explain to our listeners what a safety plan is? Because it sounds quite technical. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> so in the 80s and 90s, the first best practice, if you will, the thing that we were all told to do as therapists was verbal contracts. And we know now that that's a hot button. 
Um, it's causing friction in the community because a verbal contract at that time was the person across from you saying, I agree to not kill myself in the next 24 to 48 hours, and I'll sign this piece of paper saying such. We know now that when they did sign that piece of paper, they were doing it to make us feel better. It wasn't actually proving to save a life. It wasn't actually keeping them safe. And so now we do safety planning, which is actually meant to be more of a empowerment tool. It's meant to say, hey, between the time that we have contact and the next time we have contact, what are some things that you can do to keep yourself safe? And so a traditional safety plan, as you see it, um, you'll see it in case management now. You're going to see it from doctors when they discharge a patient back into their home or their space. And a safety plan, in essence, is a couple questions, pretty much five questions, um, asking about how they know when they're well. So what does that look like, feel like? What is that experience like? Mm -hmm. Who are their supports, as we talked about previously? And then getting some awareness around what are their triggers and warning signs and what action steps can they take for themselves to feel better. So safety planning isn't specific to just suicide. It can be helpful to a family that's having conflict. Um, I've used it with families that are fighting. It can be helpful for substance use, and it can be helpful for domestic violence to say, what can we do to keep everybody safe in the situation? And so I think, although it sounds technical, safety plans have shown up a lot in different areas, and people might have seen one and not even realized what it was. Yes, yes. Um, when you say that asking a patient, how does he know that he's doing well? What does that mean? Can you walk us through it? Yeah, so I think I love to start with that question because it feels like it's a low-risk question, right? It's, it's kind of asking the person, when everything is going well, what do you look like and act like? So a person's response is going to be unique to them, but it might be something like, I take my medications on time. I get up for school and get to school on time. I get to work. I feel more animated in my face. I'm more social. I spend time with my partner or my spouse. And so they're going to give you some concrete things that are physical, emotional, or spiritual to show that they're doing well because they're feeling good in their body and their skin. And I think that could be a really nice insight into also the triggers or the warning signs. So if I'm feeling animated and social when I'm well is one of my warning signs that I isolate yes. and I actually become less social when I'm mm -hmm. not doing well, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So it does increase awareness. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So after they do identify some of these triggers, what can they do? Can you give us an example, maybe from a patient that you had that, okay, I identified that when I become more isolated or when I become more aggressive, because that's one of the ones too, I become really aggressive with people. So how can they change that? So I think, you know, the self-awareness is the first step. And then it's looking at opposites, right? So if they're saying I get more aggressive when I'm not well, is it more about like finding ways to alleviate that emotion? So if there's anger that's showing up, what are some healthy ways to offload that so that you're not feeling like it's festering in your skin or your bones? Um, I use visuals like you're a tea kettle that's about to boil over. Um, you're a volcano about to erupt, right? So looking at what are some of the positive coping skills they can use. For most of the clients I serve now, they need movement. So in a society that's go, 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 we still find ourselves sitting a lot when we're at work or in the car. And so maybe it's like intentional movements of I'm going to take a quick walk or I'm going to stretch or I'm going to, you know, punch this pillow at home. It just depends on the person. And so part of their action plan in the safety plan is to actually name out some of the things they could do for themselves. Could be something like taking a walk, calling grandma, petting their cat, right? Whatever is unique to them that could possibly work. So that sounds a lot like uh, self-care. 
Do you do you do you also talk about uh, what they eat, uh, exercise, the importance of exercise? Does that come into the picture? It definitely does when you think of like the elements of self care. I think it's also tricky to make sure that they're talking to the right providers if they were to go into any of that in detail. So some of the things I might normalize is like, okay, people who have a vitamin B or D deficiency might show up a certain way in how they behave. But I'm not a dietitian or a doctor, mm -hmm. so I might actually help them connect with another provider for that particular exploration. Mm -hmm. And so talked about the importance of sleep and diet and exercise absolutely is part of self-care but if they need something a little bit more robust or a little bit more detailed I might say okay let's bring in a provider to collaborate on that so Kara how about medication because we know that so many medication and psychotropics they can increase suicidal ideation how do you tackle that Yeah, I think, you know, recognizing which medications have the highest risk and also recognizing the patient or client, what their age is, what's their background, is there more risk for someone who identifies as male versus female. Um, you know, I think I'm seeing kind of shifts in what medications are prescribed more often, and I think that's different for each region or each state. Um, so like here in Colorado, we're seeing a lot more antidepressants showing up um, because we also have generations that are telling us they're more anxious and depressed than we've ever seen and so recognizing some of that I know that's a hot button because there also is new research coming out that shows not all medications increase suicidal risk and so I think just being mindful and on top of what's coming out when it comes to research is going to be helpful and I know that the public is just trying to figure this out as well it's not an easy answer <laughs> no it's not and also I mean we all respond differently to medication so yes. and, and yes. that's why it's so important that us we work with doctors too and maybe try to talk to the doctor and, and see how that's right. coming up another topic in uh, still talking about um <clears throat> safety plan uh how about making the environment safe how does that work because we know that in terms of suicide prevention it's very important to maybe stop them from having access to arm firearms or whatever yes. method mm -hmm. whatever method they're, they're they're thinking about yeah so i think You know, the reassurance for your listeners is that suicide is, in fact, preventable for most people, right? The, the general population, because this is a place of pain, they want someone to help them figure out how to make the pain stop. There is the exception, the outlier, the person who has no warning signs, has a plan, moves through with it, and no one sees it coming. But again, that's the exception to the rule. And so with that comes a knowledge of when people go through this much pain, for days, weeks, or months, they're going to have a plan potentially manifest, and they're, all, they're going to stick to that plan. So if George, the client we talked about earlier, says, I, my plan has always been to use a firearm, and we secure the firearm so that it's with a, a trusted friend, or the ammunition is separate from the firearm, and it's no longer in the trunk of that car, they don't find another means. And that shocks people, because they're like, oh, this person could be a danger to themselves in so many ways. But when you have this much pain, and you've been for lack of better words, fantasizing about how to die, if we take the means away, we buy you time. So making the environment safe could be securing that firearm, could be securing medication, so it's not just sitting out in the um, medicine cabinet, if you will. It could be saying, let's increase supervision for this person so they're not home by themselves for six hours. Those kinds of things might be examples of making the environment safe that actually buys us time to help them feel better in the situation. 
Yeah, we, uh, I, I read the other day, and I'm trying to remember which book, but I read so many books, it's hard. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I read something that really made me stop and think, because we, we're always talking about how suicide is not about ending life. And the, the author said, well, actually, many times it is about ending life, but it's about ending the life that they have at that moment. So making changes, yes, I want this life to stop. So also maybe encouraging your your um, encouraging the listener right now who is listening to this podcast, but also our patients to make changes in their lives, to identify, mm -hmm. and and it has to do with the triggers as well. Absolutely, because I think a gentler example of what you just named is the person who fantasizes about getting on a plane and starting over right, to leave everything behind. And so I think that is considered a lighter, more normalized version of I want this life to stop, right? I want to, I want to start over. I want to reinvent myself and be a different person. And I think that's such a human experience, right, to say this is really hard. I'm stressed out. I don't see an end in sight. I just want this to end. And that's where I think some of the language of I want to go to sleep and never wake up or I want to um, – just stop, right? Like these are just things that people might say to express that pain that we've talked so much about today. Yes, it's it's some of the warning signs, the verbal ones. I, I just recorded a, an episode just on warning signs. So I walked through all the verbal, non-verbal warning signs, which ones are red flags and things like that. So I encourage the listener to go back to that episode and listen to more details. So, Kara, we are kind of wrapping up. I just, first of all, of course, I want to thank you for being with us and bringing your knowledge into this conversation. And I would, yes, I would like to end the uh, this episode by asking you one more question. If our listener is thinking, I want to end my life or I want to end this pain, what would you tell them? I know it's going to be hard for that listener to hear because they're in so much pain, but I, I want them to hear that the connection to someone else, anyone else, can be a protective factor. To just connect with another living human being around this pain can really start to offset it and allow them to feel like they can breathe just a little bit better. Um, I know for my clients that have, have, that have spoken to me in detail about this, it really is about just feeling seen and heard by someone they trust. And so my hope is that that listener would identify who that person could be and just say, you know what, I'm not okay. And I just need to talk to someone about it. And I would hope that would be one of the life-saving measures that can be experimented with to say, if I just talk to someone about it, does this take some of the power of suicide away? Mm -hmm. Well, that's very powerful. And it is about connection, isn't it? And, and many times, as you said, there is so much pain and it's hard for them to listen. But please reach out there is someone willing to listen. Absolutely. I truly believe that, and I think that is one of the best life-saving measures is just to feel like someone cares and that they see you and that they, they, they're hearing you out and they just want to know what's going on because they want to help. They truly do. Thank you so much, Kara. I have a great Absolutely. day in Denver. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they're not scared like we are Portlanders right now about the snow. <laughs> not any here there's a total dusting from before <laughs> thank you so much and have a good day and thank, thank you, you thank you for being with us absolutely take care
You've been listening to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paula Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, please consider contacting Paula through her website, understandsuicide.com.